Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 12. 2 Peter 1 verse 12, where we're continuing the study we've begun in this short epistle, but a very important one. We began to look at this two weeks ago, and we had a snow day last week, so we're taking it up. Turn with me as I read, beginning at verse 12 through the end of chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God add his blessing and read, uh, blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. <clears throat> In this pulpit, there is a Bible that has symbolic meaning. If you ever want to come up here and look at this, you can. It's not a special Bible, but it was given to the church years ago. And 28 years ago, when Pastor Robert Williamson retired, he left that Bible in the pulpit in our old sanctuary for the next pastor who would follow him. The idea, of course, was that any pulpit ministry should be founded on the Word of God. And then in 2006, on the day that we as a congregation processed during our 11 o'clock worship service from the old sanctuary to this new sanctuary, Dr. Rogers, the senior pastor at the time, carried this Bible as a further act of symbolizing our belief in the Bible as God's inerrant word and his infallible word and as the basis of our life and faith as a congregation. I remember some of the feedback we received at that point from a number of folks in the church who found that symbolism to be very meaningful that day. 
It was as if we were being reminded by both a beloved former pastor and a present beloved pastor at the time to stand firmly on God's word. These verses before us have a similar tone. If you think about it, in verse 14, Peter alludes to the fact that his time is short. He says, since I know that the putting off of my body, it's literally the word tent, will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And most likely here, Peter is referring to what Jesus had said to him after Jesus rose from the dead. And the interaction is recorded at the end of John's gospel in John 21, verses 18 to 19. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, to Peter, follow me. So Peter's probably remembering back to that interchange. And in light of what Jesus said to him, Peter probably knew that since he was now old, years have gone by, decades have gone by, it would not be long until he was martyred for Christ, as Jesus had predicted. And tradition has it that Peter and Paul were both put to death in the persecution that broke out under the emperor Nero in AD 64 to 65. So what we have here in Second Peter is Peter's final word to the church. Final words are always treasured by family members who are attending a loved one near to death, and maybe some final words are said, and those are always remembered. Imagine yourself sitting with Peter near the end of his life and listening as he spoke wise and important words of encouragement and warning as an apostle of Christ. Of course, we also know that these words were given under inspiration of Scripture uh, by God, and so they are God's word to us as well. They are part of Holy Scripture. Last time, in the first part of chapter 1, we saw Peter's summary of all that God had given us in Christ and how we must persevere in knowing Christ and growing in Christ and trusting and following Christ and, and seek to, to put on all these virtues that Peter lists there as we trust in Christ and looking forward to one day being welcomed into Jesus' eternal kingdom. But now Peter shifts gears in verses 12 and following in our text and he begins to address the major issues of concern that are going to fill the rest of this letter. False teachers were denying the second coming of Christ within the church in some way and were confusing the church by their heresies. And so the danger of false teachers and the issue of the return of Christ will be the issues that we will be looking at in the next weeks. But this evening, our focus is on Peter's apostolic reminder to us as believers, his reminder to continue to stand firmly on the Word of God. We want to look at that theme this evening under three points. And the first point is this, our constant need to be reminded to stand firmly 
on God's Word. Our constant need to be reminded to stand firmly on God's Word. Notice in verses 12 through 15, Peter's emphasis on reminding them. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And then in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And part of that effort was certainly to write this final epistle to remind them of important things. Peter is not saying that they need to learn the truth for the first time. In fact, in verse 12, he says, Though you know these things and are established in the truth that you have. So they're already established. They know the truth of God. They've come to faith in Christ. They've been built up for a period of time. He says that they are established. And so let's think for a moment about the fact that all of us If these believers needed it, we need it too. We all need to be regularly reminded of the foundational truths of God's word. In fact, we need to be reminding ourselves as well. Think of it this way. This is not mere head knowledge we're talking about, although that's important. We must know and be familiar with the doctrines of the Bible, certainly. But it's not the bare remembering of these things as if, You were studying to try to get an A on an exam about these things, you know, like a Bible quiz exam. And if you got an A, then you were fine. No, it's not simply that. It's remembering and bringing to mind the truth of God in the way of taking hold of these truths by faith, appropriating them by faith, believing them. It's something living and active. It's actually... We would say it's actually taking hold of God himself by faith in his word. It's holding fast to Christ by remembering all that Jesus is to us as he is revealed in the word of God. This is what our daily walk with Christ is all about. Having the word of God alive and active in our hearts and minds as the springboard to trust in Jesus and to look to God and to obey him and follow him. It's like the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays for the believers there that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And they already know Christ. Christ already dwells in their their hearts. He's talking, he's praying about the Spirit's power and work in their lives. He prays that they might, that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. This is something that is to be renewed daily and weekly that that Jesus might be real to us. I would call this the spiritual discipline of remembering. It's the opposite of what we're warned about again and again, about forgetting the Lord. When Scripture warns about forgetting the Lord, it doesn't mean somehow forgetting that God exists. No, it means going about your daily life without regard to God and His Word. Forgetting is like coasting in your Christian walk. Forgetting is dullness of heart. Forgetting is coldness and distance from the Lord in your thinking and in your heart and in your desires. 
Forgetting is prayerlessness. And so it's as Peter writes in verse 13, he thinks it's right, quote, to stir them up by way of reminder. We need to be stirred up. Paul writes to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. That's the same idea. You might think of Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. He's speaking about his soul and all the, all the grief he's been through with Jerusalem destroyed and all, all that he's been through with the people of God of his day and uh, continuing to remember his affliction and how his soul, he says in verse 20, is bowed down within me. There he is. But verse 21, you probably know it by heart. Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. There's that remembering. This I call to mind. He's like the psalmist that says, Oh, soul, why are you so cast down within me? Hope thou in God, the psalmist says. But Jeremiah goes on in the next verse. Therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He begins to speak to himself and to remind himself about God's steadfast love. That's the kind of remembering Peter has in mind here. Jeremiah is reminding himself of God's truth and God's character revealed in the Word of God. And so we see our constant need to be reminded to stand firmly on God's Word. And how do we do that? We do it in a, in a number of ways, through, certainly through worship, both corporate and privately, through Bible reading and prayer, through trying to meditate on God's Word so that after we've read the Bible or memorized it even, we're turning it over on in our minds. The word meditate in Hebrew actually has the sense of of turning something over in your mind so much that you're mumbling or murmuring about it under your breath. You know, people might think you're on your cell phone or something like that because your lips are going. That's what meditating is. It's thinking about it, applying it to our lives. We remember by hearing the word preached and taught. We remember by singing hymns and songs of praise to God in our hearts as we read about in Colossians and Ephesians. In fact, hymns are one of the best ways of calling to mind the fundamental truths of the Bible that we're called to remember. And as you sing a hymn or a song to yourself, a a familiar phrase of a hymn, it's powerful. You're helped to take up that truth again and again and stand on it and and the poetry and the rhyming and all of that and the, the music helps you to bring it to mind. It's a way to remember. And then we're, we're also to be reminded by the normal one-anothering in the body of Christ, as we would call it, as we uh, encourage and teach and exhort each other, as we speak to one another in our fellowship and in our friendships and in Bible study groups and home fellowship groups and all of these things. These are ways that we seek to be reminded to stand firmly on God's Word. Think of it as an illustration from sports. Think of great athletes. I know Tom Brady's playing right now, but don't think about that. But I'm sure he goes over how to pass the ball, you know, over and over, and his personal coach probably helps him with that. Or a great basketball player shoots 100 foul shots a day maybe, so he keeps his shot exactly right. Or a golfer, you know, they say so much can go wrong with the golf swing. So a golfer has to go over the fundamentals of his stroke over and over again. These are all illustrations of the fact that 
Christians are called to keep remembering, going over the fundamentals of God's word that Peter talks about here, that we would stir, be stirred up by way of reminder so that we can hold fast to Christ by that word. Well, secondly, in our text, we find that we are helped to stand firm by God's word confirmed in history. We are helped to stand firm by God's word confirmed in history. This is verses 16 through 18. And before I read this, remember to understand this point, we have to review the overall direction of this letter because at at verse 16, Peter summarizes the main themes of the rest of his epistle. Let me begin with that verse. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this verse, you have um, alluded to both the themes that are concern us for the rest of the time. In chapter 2, we're going to have three sermons on false teachers. And then in chapter 3, it's fundamentally about the return of Christ. And notice how verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised Myths. Probably that's speaking about what the false teachers were saying about the return of Jesus Christ, that it's not going to really happen. It's a nice religious story. Maybe it gives you some encouragement, but it's a myth. That's likely what they were saying. And the rest of the verse is referring to the return of Christ. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's going to have a lot to say about that in chapter 3, about the return of Christ in glory. And so these are the two themes that we're going to see. But before Peter goes into these matters in depth, he first reminds them of the foundation of the inspiration and authority of the word of God. And he does this in two ways. It's a little bit hard to follow this, but just think about this. In the first way is in verses 16 through 18 that we're going to look at at this point. And then our third point is the other way. But this first point, Peter speaks about the transfiguration of Christ. Let me read to that, starting at the end of verse 16. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's amazing. If you remember, the narrative of the transfiguration of Christ on this mountain is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus goes up onto this mountain with his three closest disciples, and the Bible tells us that he's transformed, he's transfigured before them. He shines with glory. Think of what that experience would have been like for Peter to be there and see that. That would have been unforgettable. Our family hikes the same mountain every year in West Texas out at this camp that we go to. And it's a a tradition to hike that for those who are old enough to do it. And once when our son Stephen was eight years old, he, well really I, on the path, saw an arrowhead that was a perfect arrowhead. We still have that arrowhead saved. It's this yellowish brown arrowhead. It was right in the path. He picked it up. I kept it. 
I don't know if that was fair, but I did see it first. But I've never forgotten that moment. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be with Jesus when he was transfigured and his clothes shone, his body, his whole being shone with heavenly glory and this voice from heaven spoke and Peter now 30, maybe 35 years later is recalling this. And why does he do this? We might ask, why does he bring up this particular incident in Christ's life when he is talking about the second coming of Christ and the false teacher's attack on that fundamental doctrine? Well, commentators pretty much all agree that the answer is that the, tr- the, the, the transfiguration is a preview of the coming of Christ. It's a glimpse of what will happen, what it will be like, a little glimpse of Jesus when he will return in glory. He will return in great power and glory and every eye will see him and his glory and majesty will be seen by all. But in talking about the transfiguration, notice that Peter is referring to it for another purpose as well, to confirm the already given prophetic word of Scripture itself. This is why at the beginning of verse 19 he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Now there's debate about how to interpret the connection of all these verses, but it's likely that Peter is saying, our point three will say that the Bible is inspired by God. It's given by God. We're going to see that soon. A very critical set of verses about inspiration. But the transfiguration and all of God's works and acts in history also confirm the written word. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration. But his second coming is taught in the Old Testament It's talked a lot about the day of the Lord that's fulfilled in Jesus' first coming and his second coming both. There are many references to it there. And so we believe the doctrine of the second coming of Christ by the prophetic word of Scripture itself, but the eyewitness testimony and historical acts of God confirm that his word is true. Follow me as I say this. This is an important point to consider, especially if you or maybe you know a loved one who's questioning whether the Bible is really true. Notice here that the false teachers were apparently talking about the Bible as if it were a collection of myths in some way that shows you there's there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible is always under attack by the world and by Satan. But the logic of Peter's argument helps those who might be struggling with this. And young people especially, I can assure you that at some point in school or college or with a friend of yours, your belief in God's word as the inspired and errant word of God is going to be challenged strongly. It cannot help but be so in our culture and society. And Peter is saying, on that mountain, we saw Jesus transfigured. 
We heard the Father's voice born from above, carried from above. It's, it's the same verb we're going to see later about the prophets being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is saying, this is not myth. I was there. It really happened. And so God's word in this sense, God's prophetic word about the return of Christ, that particular doctrine that's being challenged right now in Peter's case, that word has been confirmed by God's work in history, in the transfiguration of Christ. And in many other ways, God's word is confirmed again and again and again. Any biblical archaeologist will tell you this. It's really It's really almost stunning to look back at archaeology for the past 50 or 100 years. And, you know, archaeological experts, secular experts, said for decades that there was no King David. There's no archaeology evidence of David ever existing until they discovered parts of King David's palace in Jerusalem. And you could multiply that a hundred or a thousand times about all these archaeological finds that have confirmed Old Testament and New Testament narratives that were scoffed at before. God does not ask us to believe in myths. God has acted in history, and people have been eyewitnesses to these things. Listen to Paul for just one example of this in 1 Corinthians. He, he begins 1 Corinthians 15 about reminding them of the gospel which he preached. And then he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there it's all fulfilled according to what scripture said. But then he brings in eyewitnesses. He says, and that he, Christ, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to talk about him appearing to James and to himself. There were eyewitnesses. The Bible is radically different from all other religious books because the Bible is rooted in and confirmed historically. You do not need to be embarrassed by the Bible. The Bible has stood the test of time. It's been like the rock of Gibraltar with all the attacks against it over the centuries. And all those attacks are like shooting paintballs at a tank. You know, it just changes the color of the tank a little bit, but it doesn't affect it at all. And this brings us to our third point. Standing firmly on God's inspired word enables us to live by faith in a dark world. Verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice the end of this section first. In verses 20 to 21, we have one of the most key passages in the Bible about the Bible's inspiration. We've had whole sermons in our church here about these two verses. 
And Peter is holding forth the foremost reason why we believe the Bible and stand on the Bible is God's word. And that is because we believe the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is from God. It says that 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, this verse is using the word interpretation in a way that's not very familiar to us. We usually think of interpretation as, you know, those of us who read the Bible that's been given and we try to interpret it. But that's really not the sense of it here. Yes, it's, it's the same kind of word, but... The idea here is the Old Testament prophet experiencing a vision or a dream given by God and then being given a divine interpretation of that vision by inspiration from God. Think of Joseph with Pharaoh's dream. God gave Joseph the interpretation. Or think of Daniel interpreting the king's dream and being given the interpretation of those dreams. And verse 20 is saying the interpretation is always from God in this case. It's not something that the prophet dreamed up himself. It's not, it doesn't originate from the prophet himself. And our understanding of that verse is confirmed by verse 21 going on and explaining that. It says, for, in other words, because, here's why, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Well, first and foremost, by faith. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, this is how God produced the Bible. Yes, there are many confirmations of the Bible being God's word. The Westminster Confession lists about six or eight of them in its statement on the Holy Scriptures, just how the Bible all is, has this beautiful harmony among all of its parts and all of these things by prophecies being fulfilled But primarily, the believer holds to God's word and believes it's the word of God because as a person reads it, he's convinced by the Holy Spirit, this is the word of God. And so you are unable to stand on it. And so finally, we see this beautiful description in the first part, verse 19 of our text here, of this last point, where... Peter writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What a beautiful description, isn't it, of how we live day to day. We read earlier in our responsive reading in Psalm 119 about about God's word being a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And that is the same idea that we see here. The coming of Christ is compared, the second coming of Christ is compared to the morning star rising in our hearts. And for believers, his coming will be like the dawn after a long and difficult night. What a picture for us of the hope we have. But Peter's point is that until that day, God's word is our lamp shining in a dark place. 
You know, it's like you're out on a foggy, dark night, and, you know, it's really nice if you're driving down a road that you don't know very well to have a car, you know, a little bit ahead of you with their taillights on, of course, and you can see where they are. You know, you're kind of following the road by following that car. That's a kind of a scary experience to have when fog is really thick like that. But God's Word is our light, our lamp, shining in a dark place. And the world always feels like a dark place to believers. Isn't this a great encouragement? I hope you're encouraged by this. What a beautiful verse this is to be encouraged by. We should not be surprised at all the confusion, all the heartaches, all the discouragements of this dark world. But, believer... Just keep standing firmly on the Word of God. Just keep paying attention to God's Word, as Peter puts it here. The lamp that shines on our daily path. The lamp that, above all, points us to Jesus, our Savior and Lord. The morning star who will one day rise in our hearts when He finally returns. Amen. Father, we thank You for Jesus. Thank you for the great hope that we have. We think of uh, the darkness of night and the imagery that is used in the Bible to talk about that. And we think about the dawning of the return of Christ, this great morning star as he returns in power and great glory. And for those who are in, in Jesus Christ, a day of unsurpassed rejoicing. Lord, help us to live in light of that day remembering your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.